Good evening to you all on this summer night. I can hear the crickets and the cicadas out there listening. I was once in this hall uh, right before lunch, so I was the only one left in here. And I got this, I had my eyes closed. I had this feeling that I was being watched. Do you know what that feeling is like? Like somebody's watching. And I opened my eyes and I looked out this window was a deer uh, looking in. And then I looked over here and there was uh, a fox looking in. I thought, oh, okay, there's something going on in the hall. I don't think it's necessarily me, but there's obviously something of interest here. A lot of the animals around here uh, come up pretty close sometimes. They're not afraid. And I think that's a consequence of the practice that's done here and the, the atmosphere that you can feel around this place. I used to, years ago when I first started coming to, to IMS, uh, I used to notice as soon as I pulled into the parking lot I would start to feel this field of something. And uh, over the period of, of time that I've been coming here, uh, which is going on 30 years now, it's, the field seems to have expanded somewhat. So now it's about when I get down to the Lincoln Cemetery on Pleasant Street, you start to feel the study center and the forest refuge and the retreat center. So in our own way, in the practice that we do here, we're all contributing to this environment of safety and um, the Dharma resonance that is here. Tonight I'd like to pick up a topic that I talked about last week and move it forward a little bit more. Last week, uh, for those of you who are here, you might remember that I talked about the entry into the path and the different motivations that bring us to practice and what those were at the beginning and how in the arc of our practice they sometimes turned into something different. We got a little bit more realistic about what was actually going on when we started to see the effects of practice. And then we had some delusion ironed out of our original fantasies about what was going to be going on and how it was all going to happen and open for us. And then with that more grounded understanding um, that was connected to what was actually happening in practice, we would continue to go on and do more practice because even though it may not have been what we originally wanted it to be or thought it, thought it was or go where we desired for it to go, it definitely seemed to be doing something, right? <laughs> Something's happening. Something has happened for you to ever wind up in a place like this doing this kind of 
uh, work. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about how practice opens in this talk. And I'm going to touch on a particular body of teachings called the progress of insight. But before I get into the particulars of that theme, I'd like to talk a little bit about how the full Eightfold Path is actually practiced in the process of doing insight meditation. So those of you who are familiar with the the core teachings of the Buddha, which are the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, realize that the, the Eightfold Path is basically the Buddha's prescription for what we need to do, what we need to cultivate, how we need to hold things in order to move towards the liberation that his teachings really point to in the third noble truth. So right at the beginning, you've got the orienting overview of what's going on in the Buddhist teaching with the first step of the Eightfold Path, where he basically says, you know, this is the framework of this whole system that I'm teaching and that you will be practicing as you walk this path. The Four Noble Truths and and the Eightfold Path. This is what it's about. This is what we're doing with all the activities, all the learnings, all the investigation that are subsumed uh, under this heading of the Eightfold Path. This, this is what it's about. This is about the end of discretionary human suffering, especially the end of suffering which is rooted in ignorance, but which is expressed in the form of the suffering of craving and the actions that flow from it. So insight meditation is always practiced within the context of this view of what's going on. It's somehow related back to this understanding of the Four Noble Truths and the way the Eightfold Path uh, operationalizes the, uh, what needs to be done in order to liberate the mind. So to just make a simple clarification, so, you know, there's a lot of popularization now uh, with secular versions of uh, mindfulness meditation or mindfulness, maybe even not meditation, but just mindfulness. And these have uh, a lot of value, a lot of social value. And from the perspective of what we're doing here, they're a very, it's a very partial view because it's not informed by the overview contained in the first step of the Eightfold Path, wise view. So it's not informed in that, that kind of way. It's, uh, although you could say some aspects of it have uh, an implicit tie-in with it. 
The second step of the Eightfold Path, of course, is wise intention, which is the cultivation of compassion and renunciation. So the Buddha tells you right up front what the important values are in his path of practice, where the path is leading, what kinds of things will be cultivated, what attitudes of mind are cultivated in doing this particular practice, compassion and renunciation. And he tells you what is the wiser, what is the skillful attitude of mind to take towards what you experience, towards yourself and towards others. So compassion and letting go of using pleasure as the uh, operant orienting principle of things. Then you get to the part of the path that has to do with moral restraint, otherwise called, called sila. Wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood, which are practiced here in terms of taking and keeping the precepts. It's baked into, built into the context of practice because it's foundational to the practice environment and the practice agreement that we have with each other. And then we go on to the last three steps of the Eightfold Path, which is bhavana, or what it's called mental development, where the Buddha defines wise effort. He said, this is the kind of effort that you need to make in doing these practices. And it basically comes down to cultivating wholesome states and strengthening them and preventing the arising of unwholesome states and weakening them or relating to them skillfully when they are present. So he's saying, okay, there's certain kinds of states that are suffering states and you don't wanna increase those. You, overall, the arc of this practice is these are de- to be decreased, these are to be let go of, and the wholesome states, the non-suffering states, states of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, better known as generosity, metta and uh, karuna, and wisdom are to be increased. That's what's going on here in the big picture. And then he talks about wise mindfulness and wise concentration, the seventh and eighth steps on the path. And those are the ones that we can often see most directly related to meditation practice, right? We're cultivating uh, mindfulness, we're doing mindfulness meditation, we're doing Vipassana meditation, and we're trying to uh, work with the mind in a way that invites concentration and supports its arising. So that part we can see. But it's important to be aware that all those other pieces are in their operant and are being expressed in one way or another in what's going on here. It's framing the kind of uh, undertaking that's present in doing Vipassana meditation and it's informing it. It's very much a part of it. 
So let's look at how insight meditation, Vipassana meditation, fits into the goals of the Four Noble Truth and the Eightfold Path. So you might start with the basic question, why is it called insight meditation? Interesting turn of phrase, insight meditation. It's not just inside meditation, it's like insight meditation. So remember that the Buddha's basic premise is that suffering is caused by craving that has its roots in delusion. Right? Second noble truth cause of suffering. The way to end this craving is to eliminate its cause, which is delusion. Wisdom, which is understanding the true nature of things, does end delusion. And the end of delusion is the end of the suffering that springs from it. So you could say the Eightfold Path as a whole is the remedy for delusion. But in order for the remedy to work, it has to be applied according to instructions in the right kind of dose, (laughs) right? According to doctors, Dr. Buddha's uh, suggestions, right? So, and this has to be... uh, a full-bodied application of these teachings. So for instance, it isn't sufficient just to be able to uh, reel off the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. It's not like that. So you could say, um, in order to experience the transformative effects of these teachings, we have to experience it at deep levels of our being. And the intellectual level is a significant one, there's no doubt about that. Clear comprehension, knowing the basic framework of the teachings, holding what you're doing here within the framework of the teachings is necessary. So to get to the point of defining how insight meditation fits into all of this, you could say that meditation, which is the focus of the seventh and eighth steps of the Eightfold Path, is the process by which the mind learns to see its own workings and its relationship to what arises within mindful awareness. So there's a kind of turning of the capacities of the mind towards the mind itself, right? Most often in our walking around life, as a number of you have commented on, most of the time the mind is turned outwards and is kind of lost in what's quote unquote out there, or it's turned inward in a certain kind of way, but there isn't a lot of consciousness there. There's not a lot of awareness there. There's just sort of a generic rumination that 
is uh, barely conscious, although the anxiety trail might be visible. But the mind more normally kind of ricochets from a thought to a semi-feeling, to a memory, to a fantasy, to a want, to a, you know, a sense desire to, right? That's how it goes. All sort of blurry and every once in a while something will, will come up and be perceived clearly and then there'll be a sense like, oh, I'm back. <laughs> I'm back. <laughs> but most of the time, when we sit down and start meditating, especially in the early stages of our practice, it, it's a really pretty big shock, isn't it, when you realize like how out to lunch the mind is most of the time. It's like, oh my God. It's like, it sounds so simple, but it, it's like, oh, I, gee, I can't, I can't even like find the body sitting and I'm sitting, you know. <laughs> it's like, I'm here for one second, two seconds, and it flies away. And that's how it can be. Right? That's how it can be. But this process of insight meditation is coming to mindful, closely connected, wise relationship with what is directly experienced. And the understanding is when direct experience is known as it is, direct experience is known as it is, as reality reveals itself when mindfulness is well established, the fundamental misunderstandings about how things work are seen through. In other words, delusion begins to be seen and it begins to be seen through. But in order for that to happen, there has to be mindfulness. There has to be some sustained mindfulness, right? Some capacity to see. This isn't image I'm using, seeing. You know what I mean, right? There has to be some presence. Presence to experience, some recognition of what immediate, real-time experience is. So you could say that Vipassana meditation is the process of curing fundamental delusion by sustained connection with reality. At this level of present tense, immediate, reality in a very simple, basic form. It's like we go back to the basic level, basic, most simple level at which we can perceive, at which we can receive experience. And we say, okay, I'm coming down out of the delusion tower. I'm going to go down to the baseline, to the baseline of what I can immediately know, I can immediately perceive, and I'm going to station my mind there. And I'm going to be there. And I'm going to see what it is. And I'm going to let it be how it is when I see it. And this is very much a part of it, right? So, in order for this kind of curing of the fundamental delusion through sustained connection, there's a number of things that have to happen because this is a process, right? So first mindfulness has to be established and then sustained and directed. And then as part of this, there are different ways you can describe this process. You could describe it as the opening of the seven factors of awakening or in other ways, but 
wise concentration and other wholesome factors of the heart and mind are developed to support the clarity and power of the seeing that's going on moment by moment. So then the mind is engaged, it's turning towards the seeing, how suffering is created moment by moment and how it can be released, right? It's right there at that base level. At the, at the, you can't get any simple level, simpler than this, what is happening right now level. That's where the mind is turned. That's where it's learn, learning to receive information, sensory information, primarily, with mindfulness. So let me talk about <coughs> the different ways that insight meditation can be instructed just a little bit in order to give you a framework. So a first thing to know is, you know, we usually come into this practice through a particular practice door, right? So some people come in and they'll come in and say, well, I came in through Goenka practice, which is uh, Mr. Goenka developed a particular style of practice or built on a particular style of practice that really turned mindful awareness towards sensation in the body and did this sweeping practice where you know you're moving mindful awareness through through the body and receiving sensation over and over and over again lots of sitting walking uh, not so much you know <laughs> uh, just hour after hour of that that's one set of instructions some other people may have come into practice through Utejaniya style practice where the mind <coughs> is asked to attend primarily with mindfulness to the mind door itself, to the attitude of mind which is visible as various experiences arise and pass away. A strong emphasis in that style of practice on cultivating a clear understanding of what mindfulness itself is, right? So that the seeing of what is there is not being filtered through hindrances, right? There's a lot of mindfulness checking going on in uh, Utejaniya style practice. And there are styles of practice that work with uh, more directed practice. For instance, where there's attention directed to the breath at a particular place, you know, at the nostrils for, for some teachers, or in the rising and falling of the abdomen for other teachers, and, you know, they uh, ask you to start with the breath and pretty much stick with the breath, and in uh, some cases you're uh, invited to open to other objects if they become predominant, but then you return back to the breath. You use it in, a, in an anchoring kind of way, right? Unless you're pulled away to something else, you, that's where you, you want to stay. All of these different styles of instruction. So this is one of the reasons why, for instance, when you come here and you have a first interview with me, I'll always ask you what style of instructions you're using. Because there's not one set. 
They're all intended to do the same thing, but they all go about it in a different kind of way. So there's a variety in how to orient and direct the mind to the task of clearly seeing what needs to be seen in order for ignorance to fall away. So for many years, IMS has been significantly but not exclusively influenced by the approach to insight meditation taken by Mahasi Sayadaw, a great Burmese teacher. <clears throat> so if uh, IMS is having its 40th anniversary next year, I think, of its founding, and somewhere around IMS, um, you would find pictures of uh, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, Jacqueline Mandel, and Jack Cornfield after they had been authorized to teach by Mahasi Sayadaw when he was here. Right? So they were all authorized to teach in his lineage with his particular way of going about training the mind to. Uh, see its own workings and in the process liberate itself. So the Mahasi style of practice, which is not the exclusive uh, style of practice done here by any means. In fact, I would say it's probably not done here in its purest form uh, very often. involves uh, a number of different things. One is an emphasis on the breath as a foundational object of awareness. And the other is the use of what's called noting practice, which is the use of the faculty of perception to uh, label softly internally what is being experienced at the time it's being experienced. Right? So an example of some of those kinds of labels would be in the walking practice would be lifting, moving, placing, shifting, right? Or reaching, 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 reaching. (laughs) So that style of practice uses noting, uses perception to keep awareness connected to the sense field and to the operation of the mind's in, mind in real time by requiring it to say what it's experiencing as it's experiencing. Now at a certain point in this style of practice, the noting that kind of labeling falls away. It just becomes A, unnecessary and, and B, impossible and it's, it's discarded, but it's, it's kind of a, a set of water wings that are used as you start to learn how to swim. So Sayadaw Upandita is another name that you may have heard of who also practices uh, in this particular style. So when I talk a little bit later about the progress of insight, 
I'm going to be talking mostly about how um, this process of the mind starting to understand what's going on through the lens of Mahasi influence style practice, right? But let's go back for uh, a minute to a conversation about how understanding actually opens in practice. This liberative understanding actually opens in practice. Just as all conditioned things have a beginning, a middle, and an end, so the unfolding of the mind's wisdom and meditation has a similar structure, right? Beginning, middle, end. And different Buddhist traditions have different descriptions or different maps, if you want to put it that way, about how meditation practice can move the mind from wrong understanding or wrong view to liberation, to a clear understanding of reality, to non-delusion. So all of these maps, no matter what they are, basically attempts to describe the process that happens when the mind's conditioned obscurations start to be seen and then are seen through. So this map, the progress of insight, describes the general arc of learning, the unfolding of understanding a yogi can experience in doing Vipassana practice as the mindfulness and concentration really start to take hold. So a way to put it is it describes some of the key things that one notices when one starts to attend closely to moment to moment experience. So remember back at the beginning I said that craving born from ignorance is the source of discretionary human suffering and that the path of insight meditation can be described as the process of experiential learning which points awareness at immediate experience until the diluted obscuration of wrong view is seen through. But before a practitioner, a yogi, a retreatant is, is uh, within the range of seeing through the delusions, the obscurations, there's a few points that might be interesting to address. So, and it has to do with preliminaries, necessary preliminaries. So one question that sometimes comes up from people is whether someone who was just starting to pay mindful attention to their experience, could they wake themselves up in the way that the Buddha means awakening? You know, just like somebody just started to be mindful and just started paying attention to, you know, what was happening moment by moment. Could it happen like that? Could the mind see through delusion in that same kind of way? 
well, it could probably see through quite a few delusions with sustained awareness, but it wouldn't likely break through in the way that the Buddha is talking about. And that that's because unless the person had the fuller context and exposure to the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path as taught uh, by someone who understood them, they wouldn't have all the raw materials. Because remember earlier I said, I started at the very beginning and I said, what's going on in the med hall, what's going on in meditation practice, this is all leavened by, it's all part of a system of training that includes everything on the Eightfold Path. So the Buddhist path relies on all of the elements which are essential, which is what the Eightfold Path is. It's the essential elements. So then the question comes, well, if you've received the teachings, if you know the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and you, you, know, you observe sila and you know, your work to cultivate renunciation and uh, compassion, wise attitude... You know, is it, is that just going to pop open? So, sad to say, no, (laughs) probably not. So, it would be a very rare thing for a person to sit down and start practice and just have the whole liberative understanding open in their mind. Although that would be very nice, would it not? then there would still be time left over for a regular vacation. (laughs) But it's not like that. So for most of us, it's a process. Often a long process of clarifying what mindfulness is and learning how to sustain it. That's the initial step. So that means developing skill in recognizing the hindrances to concentration and learning how to work with them. So does everybody know what the hindrances are? I'm sure you know them experientially, (laughs) if not intellectually, right? So, you know, you have the the big one, uh, sense craving, and then uh, aversion in various forms. Uh, sloth and torpor, restlessness and doubt. What did I miss? That's all of them, right? So, those are the obscurations. So in order to be able to see through the obscurations, you first need to be able to see the obscurations when they're there, when they're operant. And then you have to learn how to actually bring mindfulness to bear on the obscurations, right? Mindful, 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 anger, 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 right? So this, this is a big part of the endeavor, learning how to recognize the hindrances when they're present so they actually can uh, serve to strengthen the very mindfulness that eventually wears through them and sees through them. But it means you need to learn how to develop skill in bringing mindfulness to them. So, 
this is a really crucial practice point. And this is why if you were, for instance, on the three-month retreat or on, you know, a longer than a, say, weekend retreat or something, and you were getting progressive instruction, the teacher spends so much time talking about the hindrances, the hindrances, the hindrances, you know, how to work with the hindrances, how to work with the hindrances, because it's really the key to being able to sustain mindfulness so that you can build up some momentum of practice build up the kind of momentum that actually will result in concentration, which is the Achilles heel for, for many of us. So in order to do this, consider what's involved. So you have the experience of, you know, seeing these hindrances arise in your mind stream and it's like, oh, geez, this again. Oh, this one again, you know. This, oh, God, lost it again, okay. Lost it again, lost it again, forgot again, forget. Right? A lot of humility is, is, and patience is required for this activity, as well as many other wholesome factors. And so there's a whole piece of this that's related to the ripening of the paramis, these particular attributes of, of mind, these perfections of, of mind that include things like generosity and metta and resolve and, and patience and renunciation. And because in order to do what I just said, come to some place like this, spend your time in silence, commit yourself to attending as best you're able, uh, moment by moment to whatever is arising in your body and mind. There's a lot of letting go happening and undertaking that mission and following through with it, right? So all of these qualities of mind are strengthened. So the five spiritual fact- faculties are also needed in order to be able to do this. So these aspects of the heart-mind are very much a part of the journey and as you do these practices, as you continue on, you have to really draw on these qualities. And in the course of drawing on these qualities and exercising them, you strengthen them. And this is very much in the mix when you continue to practice. Because in strengthening these particular qualities of mind, you're strengthening the causes and conditions which are present, which are part of what determines whether or not the mind opens to wisdom. So, you know, even though we wish we could make it be fast, you can see it's like an incredible undertaking. You know, when we start practice at the very beginning, for most of us, it's kind of like we're starting with a rocky New England field and we're going to want to turn it into some sort of beautiful garden. Right? You hardly know where to shovel without hitting a rock. You just got to keep keeping on. Right? So this, of course, ties back into motivation, the strength of motivation and the purity of motivation that would cause you to want to 
keep plugging away at something that has that kind of difficulty and perhaps lack of immediate payoff. But you know, there is a benefit all along the path, in the beginning, in the middle, and the end, and nothing is wasted. None of this effort that seems not to result in immediate payoff is actually wasted. In sustaining this kind of effort, you're planting many, many wholesome seeds in your mind stream. And you may not see the immediate effect, but there will be an effect over time. When the conditions for it to happen, those will ripen and will make themselves known. But you will never be able to trace it back to, oh yeah, this concentration I have now, that's coming from that afternoon where my mind was so distracted I had to keep redirecting it. I had to keep redirecting it. And I really wanted to just bag it, but I didn't. I continued to sit and just redirected it and redirected it and redirected it. You won't know that's why. But the bottom line is, you know, even though we might want to wish ourselves into the big reveal. You know, on television they have this thing they call the big reveal where suddenly all the the whole show comes together and the person sees their brand new renovated house or, you know, the identity of the bachelor that was chosen is like <laughs> uh, shown. We wish we could slingshot ourselves into the big reveal, but we can't. We kind of creep into it through sustained contact, mindful contact, with experience at the most basic sensory level, underneath the level of concept. Seeing again, 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 these seemingly ordinary, insignificant, not very remarkable things. But seeing them in the same kind of way, over and over again, with mindfulness, with interest, with close connection, with receptivity. So this opening is organic and we ourselves contribute the causes and conditions that help support the practice, wearing through the obscurations that keep us from clear seeing. So to get back to this conversation about the map, the progress of insight itself. For practice to open to the point where our personal vehicle is on the progress of insight map, the hindrances need to be pretty much under control, right? With mindfulness established and sustained. And then generally you need to hear certain teachings. The mind needs to be fairly well concentrated, meaning the mind needs to be 
have its energies pulled together to be able to attend to something in a fairly sustained way, to be uh, non-distracted, non-dispersed, not too uh, broad or general about things, but have some energy of presence to it, some energy of presence. And then when this is the case, there are certain specific understandings based on experiential observation and meditation, which can arise, which are part of the mind waking up from delusion. So these are called jnanas or knowledges. And there are 16 of them in this particular way of describing the mind's movement towards understanding. So I'm going to talk about probably three of them tonight. And then next week I'll pick up uh, further conversation. And those of you who uh, may not be here next week, I'll probably post the talk on Dharma Seed so you can follow through on the rest of the talks if they're of interest to you. So before I tell you what the specific three are. Let's talk about the role of the teacher in this whole thing, which is offering teachings which are pertinent, offering meditation instructions which incline the mind to be able to recognize certain experiences, and then pointing out things to you in interviews or other conversations that help you recognize what you're experiencing and help you cut through um, misunderstandings or conceptualizations that may be confusing what you're actually seeing. So that is part of what the teacher is doing when the teacher says, what are you noticing? So when you come in for an interview, I'll say, what are you noticing? Right, so it's not like a test. It's just like, what are you noticing? It's not like there's a right answer or a wrong answer. It's just like, what are you noticing? So the first of the insight knowledges is knowledge of mind and body. Nama Rupa. So if you were going to consider some of the teachings or some of the instructions you might hear that's pertinent to this, you might uh, hear teachings that say things like, there are six sense doors, the five senses, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and then what's going on at the mind door. Everything that we ever experience is a present tense experience of one or more of those mind doors in the present. That's the only thing that's ever going on. So you see the pointing to the present and the letting you know, okay, you've got these five sense doors. These are things that you can know. You can know what's going on at these sense doors in the present as meditative objects. And 
and this is quite revolutionary for people when this first happens, your mind, you can watch the activities of your mind, watch the mind door as a meditative object as well, that you can take um, thoughts, intentions, memories, emotions, fantasies, these can all be meditative objects, right? Objects arising and passing away at the mind door. So you might get a teaching along the lines of, well, in order for an experience to arise and be known, there needs to be a sense door, there needs to be sense contact, and there needs to be consciousness in order for us to have any kind of experience, right? In order to hear, there needs to be the sense door of the ear that's operant, right? There needs to be the hitting of the sense door through sound waves or whatever it is, and there needs to be hearing consciousness present. That's how that comes about. Particular things that come together and create an experience. So you could perhaps get instruction on how to attend at a basic non-conceptual level to immediate experience. So this is a classic story from a, a friend of mine about how she got an instruction from a, t- a teacher. I'm sure she is fine with me telling this story. I won't name names. but So she said she, she was on her first retreat, and it was a three-week retreat, which is a pretty big, you know, uh, slice to, to, uh, to uh, bite off. But So she's at a three-week retreat, and she'd gotten instructions on, you know, paying attention to the breath. And she went into the teacher, and the teacher said, how are you noticing the breath, or what, have, what are you noticing about the breath? And she said, well, it's like bellows. So, you know, like the bellows are <laughs> opening and the bellows are closing and, you know, kind of went to the uh, conceptual level. This, this was the image that came up in her mind about what was going on as the breath was happening. And the teacher went, no, 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 there are no bellows here. <laughs> no bellows. <laughs> Where are you noticing the breath? Where are you feeling the actual sensations of the breath? You know, point to it. <laughs> here, here, here. Where are you feeling it? Are you feeling the whole body and then the breath is happening within the body? Right? It was that kind of like, no, 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 no. This is not like an idea about what it is, you know. This is not, and, and you know, our minds do this, right? Like, well, you know, what are you knowing? Well, it, it was like tremendously powerful. It was just like, you know, this or that. And the teacher will say, well, what are you talking? What are you? What are you talking about? What did you notice at the sense doors? Pressure. You know, pushing energy, heat, expansion. Right. In other words reminding you to go right back to that really elemental, receptive level. You know, kind of like the the baby level of perception before the mind gets all caught up in 
making something out of it or relating it back to some other thing that it knows or um, you know, telling a story about it or tying it into something else. Just letting it be a standalone, very simple experience in the present. So knowledge of mind and body. So have you ever noticed, this is another assist to help people uh, start to be able to perceive in this kind of way. Have you ever noticed how sometimes meditation instructions are given in the passive tense? Hearing being known. So teachers will use the conventional language of you or I or, you know, your ear and that kind of stuff. But, but there is a certain way that we can begin to disentangle from the conceptual overlay that's bound up in the self-view by stripping the language down to hearing, right? Seeing, smelling, tasting, touching. Mahasi-style noting does that, right? It takes the eye out of the experience. It just, it turns perception in the direction of the what it is. It takes the I am walking down the hall to my room and it turns it into walking, lifting, moving, placing, hurrying, wanting, annoyed, right? From the, I'm walking down the hall to my room and I really can't take it anymore. Right? It's going right under it, right down to the basic ground. So that's the knowledge of mind and body. And there, there are many very uh, interesting ways this can manifest itself as the mind starts to see this. Okay, there's these six sense doors and there's things arising and passing away there. Then the next insight knowledge, the second one, is called knowledge of cause and effect. In other words, things are not random. (laughs) Cause and effect. Causes and conditions. So some of the instructions that you might hear when the teacher is pointing towards this is pointing out that Intention comes before certain actions. And and this is easiest to see with physical actions. Right, so sometimes the uh, instruction will be given on retreat. Before you open the door to your room, just become conscious of standing and then just stand there until intention happens and you see the whole show reach out and grab the knob and turn it. Have you had the experience here on on retreat where you haven't been conscious of making a decision about doing certain things, but you find yourself just doing them? Like you're in the dining hall and all of a sudden the body like pops up from the table and like walks over to the tea station and gets a cup without you, and you find yourself like halfway through it, but you, right? 
this intention that's arising all the time. Sometimes we're conscious of it, sometimes we're not. Sometimes it can resonate in a way that feels like choice in the way that we understand it and our more conventional way of seeing things. But a lot of times it's just kind of intentions happening. Intention. It's one way of seeing cause and effect. In, in this uh, seeing cause and effect too, we can notice how the body and mind condition each other. Have you noticed that? So, cause and effect. There's a sound. The sound of the klaxon <laughs> for the tornado, right? And then there's the oop. Some interpretation of the meaning of that. You get herded into the hall. How about having a body that feels tired? Feels tired. And then the mind has a great deal of difficulty sustaining mindfulness or even sustaining consciousness. In those kinds of scenes, you start to be able to have some uh, insights into some other things too when you start to realize that you know we don't actually run the show that our conscious wish or our our, uh, our preference our our conscious intention for what should happen often doesn't govern what happens next does it Have you notice that I'm going to do walking practice and for this entire 45 minutes I'm not going to miss a single step. Well, or, you know, this afternoon I'm going to be in the meditation hall and, you know, I'm going to sustain the clarity that I had in that sitting before lunch because now I know how to do it. And then you come in and the causes and conditions are different and the outcome is different, right? It's a different experience. Some little insights into our span of control problem start to arise. We start to see this cause and effect too with what the mind does in relationship to Vedana. And this is actually a a very important seeing. So when I'm talking about Vedana, I mean that, that quality, that mental experience of Pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neither pleasantness nor unpleasantness, which is part of all all experience. It's not inherent in the object itself, but it's almost like an echo of response to it. So, you're sitting here, there's a pleasant chirping sound. It's experienced as pleasant. The mind likes it. Now the mind wants to hear some more birds, right? Starts listening to see if it can pick up some more bird sounds, right? It's drawn by the pleasantness that the radar dish of attention kind of goes to trying to seek that, try to hold on to that. Or you can have the experience of unpleasant Vedana, you know, a sharp pain in the body 
and the mind goes, oh, got to get rid of this, got to get out of here, right? Starts fighting with it, tries to figure out how it can release it or get rid of it or perhaps fear arises in the mind in relationship to the unpleasantness and the thoughts of, oh, it's going to continue forever or maybe I'm going to, you know, give it up on the cushion here right at the forest refuge and... Or the experience of neither pleasant nor unpleasant where the mind is kind of not tuned into what it's experiencing because it's not vivid enough in some, some way. The pleasant we like, we're drawn towards. The unpleasant we worry about and want to get rid of. But the stuff in between, it's just like a flat plane where there's not much noticing going on. Often a lot of disconnection. All of this related to uh, cause and effect. So the third knowledge is knowledge of the three universal characteristics. So the three universal characteristics. And this is a teaching that says every conditioned thing which is all that we can directly know, is conditioned, meaning it arises due to causes and conditions and passes away when the causes and conditions change. All conditioned things are alike in three basic ways. They share three characteristics, whether they're things that are pleasant, whether they're things that are unpleasant, whether they're things that are wholesome, whether they're things that are unwholesome, whether they're sense experiences, whether they're experiences at the mind or anything that we can experience which is conditioned, and that's everything, has three characteristics. And the instructions that would help you enter into this direct knowing of this truth usually start with instructions related to impermanence. The impermanence of states and experiences. So if mindfulness is present, you start to notice this, right? Well, there was this morning, you know, and when we start, we start on a very broad or kind of gross level, yeah. Okay, it was the morning and then it was the afternoon, and now it's getting dark. Now it's the night, right? But when the mind gets more focused, when mindfulness gets stronger, when it turns to more to the arising stream of sensory experience, okay, then the noticing might be along the lines of, okay, I was present with the breath, now it's hearing. Okay, it's hearing, now it's thinking. It's thinking, now it's worrying. It's worrying, now it's fear. The mind, you start to see the mind moving from object to object, right? One thing happens, and then something else happens. Or one thing happens, and then it seemingly goes away, and then is replaced by something. Or sometimes it's experienced as something is there, and then something comes in on top of it. And that's the new predominant experience. Right, but things are moving. And then the mind starts to see, oh, within each one of these things, 
there's, within these things, there's also change. Okay? So observing a breath, you start to notice. Oh, well, there's like the in-breath piece of it, and then there's the out-breath piece of it. As the mind gets more present, more refined, more collected on an object, oh, there's the in-breath, and with the in-breath, it has a beginning, middle, and end, and a stream of sensations within it. Then there's a pause, that's a thing in and of itself. Then there's the exhale that has a stream of sensations within it. Then there's a pause, that's a thing in and of itself. So the mind starts to be able to see change at an increasingly small scale. Or another way to put it is more noticings per moment. And this becomes true with all all of the, the sense doors. Then the mind starts to take a look at what's, what's really going on. This constant nature of change, its uncontrollability, the fact that we can't, you know, get off the, off the whirling merry-go-round, the mind starts to understand, okay, there's, there's unsatisfactoriness in this. I can't cha- set my mind on the something pleasant and find lasting satisfaction in it because it doesn't stay. So even wholesome states, even states that uh, are beautiful or extremely pleasant on a sensory level, don't have the capacity to, you know, do the job we would love for them to do, which is to kind of move us into a state of fulfillment or satisfaction and let us stay there only to improve upon it <laughs> throughout eternity, right? We start to realize, well, that's hmm, changing, 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 changing. That means I can't keep it, keep it, keep it, keep it, keep it. Oh, that's a seeing and that's dukkha. And we have the experiences of painful or unpleasant things also arising, right? Because we can't say, oh, I'm only going to get the pleasant ones. I'm going to set, set the dial on wholesome, beautiful states and sensory experiences and I'm going, to, I'm going to keep it there, right? We get the other kind of experiences too. Whether they're hindrances or, or body pain or painful memories or so we start to see, okay, dukkha, the second of the three characteristics. And at the deepest levels of practice, you, you see the, just the constant arising, the constant passing away, the constant arising and passing away, as really on some fundamental <coughs> level as being fatiguing. <laughs> on a psychic level, fatiguing and... Um, not to be clung to. And the third of these universal characteristics of conditioned things is, is not self. That anything that can be experienced that, are, that arises and is known <coughs> is not owned by ourself, it's not governed by 
ourself. It doesn't belong to ourself. And that last teaching, the teaching of not-self, is probably the most subtle and difficult to grasp. But it is opening all the time right from the very beginning of practice. We start seeing it when we start realizing the limitations of our span of control, right? That there is no master control in there that is making things happen and can make uh, things happen according to our will. We're seeing that this idea that, you know, I'm, or I should be, it's just not like that, huh? It's not like that. We're open systems. We're not like a Google car that drives itself. We're open systems. So we start to see the fundamental sameness of all conditioned things. Hmm. So those are the, the first three of the insight knowledges to cover tonight because uh, we've come to the end of our time. But when the mind, uh, when the process and the practice is opened, the mind can see these things at a very deep level, at a deep sustained level which is another way of saying the mind is starting to get below the current of delusion into direct contact, observational contact with how immediate reality is. It's starting to be able to be with the current and see what's going on in the current and how the current actually is. Starting to go below that level of delusion. But before you get to that point where there's that kind of seeing possible, that sustained, concentrated, deep seeing, you will be touching into these insights, right? You may be seeing them on the level of, well, now it's night and this morning it was light, right? Or I had this knee pain and now I have a back pain, but it's different. <laughs> you, you see the change. You start to understand, okay, this is hearing. Oh, this is tasting. This is the mind's reaction to, to the pleasantness of the tasting. You start to be able to see this intermittently just by paying attention. You start to realize, oh, the body just got up and walked across the room, but I don't remember like making that decision to do that. But here I am, halfway down the hall. <laughs> oh, I can remember having that experience. And in the dining hall, something happened, and up, up popped the body, and you know, started walking. And the mind had been very quiet, and then this thought coming up oh, we're going for a walk. <laughs> it's like, and it's kind of felt like that. Oh, we're going for a walk. Okay, here we go. <laughs> right? Some, 
some initial seeing into these not-self not experiences. So it's not like we have to, you know, like strive to see or turn the mind towards, oh, I'm going to see this now, I'm going to focus on this, I'm going to get this insight now. It's, the maps aren't like that. It's more that the maps say, well, when the mind is starting to see things as they are, is starting to see through the obscurations, these are the kind of things that the mind starts to see and notice that are of significance in liberation. But you could have these experiences and have them on a very deep level and have them being part, be part of the transformation of the mind without ne- ever knowing anything whatsoever about maps and about insights. You, would, you could still have these experiences. Right? So it's not that we try to replicate the maps. It's more that the maps are a way of saying, hmm, in looking at what tends to happen to, with minds as they're moving towards liberation, you know, these, these seeings seem to be of significance and the, this is kind of a general order in which um, they tend to occur. And having said that, it's all quite individual. Quite individual, quite broad. So we'll leave it there tonight and pick up next Friday with more of the tale of the trail, so to speak. So let's just settle down and let it go back from the conceptual level of this kind of explanation into just the feeling of being in the body and and sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate